It's good to be with you all this morning. I'm Curran Bishop, and I'm a church planter in Milford, Connecticut. We've lived in Connecticut for about a year now. Uh, prior to that, we hailed from the Midwest, where the Middlecoffs are now. Um, got to spend the night at their house last night. Uh, neat to be down here. I think this is my first time on Long Island. We've been talking some about New Year's resolutions. Who's making New Year's resolutions? A lot of you. Anyone want to tell us a New Year's resolution? The accountability all of my church is going to hear. Anyone? Okay, so, so probably a lot of you are saying something like, I'm going to exercise more, because that's one that I say. Or I'm going to eat better. And you, you kind of know the vicious cycle that typically happens with New Year's resolutions. We have this tendency, you know, I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to get up and run five miles three mornings a week. And January 2nd rolls around and it's freezing rain. And January 3rd sounds like a better day to start this New Year's thing. You, know, you, you eat well. You know, you, you have uh, Christmas, of course, and, and the New Year's, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. We're eating, watching football. And so we decide we're going to eat better. And so you do that for, you know, the next day and the next day. And then the weekend rolls around. You're just like, forget it. I'm going back to my normal thing. You know, it's these just they don't last very long. We have this tendency to realize, OK, I'm going to set this resolution. I'm not going to do a very good job keeping it. Now, most of us probably don't build a whole lot of our identity on keeping our New Year's resolutions. But you could see where that could be, or at least how disciplined you are as a person can start to be a source of identity. And so you start to feel this sense of depression. I'm just not a very disciplined person. I don't accomplish the things I say I'm going to do. Well, one of the, the ways you could deal with that is just lower the standards. Okay, instead of I'm going to run five miles three mornings a week, I'm going to walk to my car at least four mornings a week. That's an easy one. Okay, I can actually do that. So now I walk to my car at least four mornings a week. Now I'm in good shape. I'm doing the resolution. I can feel good about myself. Now that sounds pretty silly. But that's essentially what the leaders of Israel have been doing. Uh, in Isaiah 66, we're coming to the end of the book. Uh, Isaiah serves for a very, very long time. If you go back to the very beginning of the book, we see that Isaiah serves over a period that when we plot out the kings whose reign he reigns, uh, he, he rule, uh, he doesn't rule. The, the kings who rule during the time that Isaiah is ministering, it covers a period of more than 60 years. So this guy is, is a prophet for Israel for a very, very long time. And it's not really a good time to be a prophet for Israel. Uh, it's a time when Israel is moving from being a powerful, independent nation, uh, slowly moving further and further and further into vassalship. Now this is the, the divided kingdom period, so he's actually ministering to the southern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. During his reign, the northern kingdom is destroyed and carried, uh, and then I carried off to captivity, they're destroyed. And, Isaiah is telling the people of Israel that if they don't take seriously what God has told them, if they don't take seriously what God has called them to be, and begin to actually act like the people of God, there's going to be punishment. And so for the, the first portion of Isaiah, we're listening to Isaiah as he's pleading with the people around him to take God's word seriously, and he's ignored over and over again for this period of 60 years. Then the second section of Isaiah, Isaiah begins talking to the people a century in the future and telling them, look, your ancestors didn't listen, and so you had to go into exile. And during Isaiah's ministry, we get to the point where we see that the exile seems to be inevitable. 
And so he's beginning to speak comfort to the people in exile about what God is going to do. Now, by the last portion of the book, Isaiah is looking forward to the future beyond the exile, to God's people of all times. And he's offering hope. But what's interesting is he's still diagnosing the same sin problems that he's talking to his contemporaries about. So it seems likely that he's expecting that God's people are going to struggle with the same sorts of sin problems. And so he's speaking to us today for the benefit of his contemporaries, for the benefit of the church throughout this time, about these same sorts of problems. And the problem we're seeing is this attitude on the people of saying, we've done our part. We've we've simplified the standards enough that we can just check off the box and feel good about ourselves. Now, we're going to look at the whole of chapter 66, but I'm going to kind of read it in chunks as we go along. But I'm going to start with verses 3 through 5. In verse 3 we read, He who slaughters an ox, which is a, a legal sacrifice, if you will. It's, it's one of the things that you're supposed to uh, sacrifice at the temple. He who sacrifices an ox is like one who kills a man. Israel doesn't practice human sacrifice. It's not okay. He who sacrifices a lamb, another legal sacrifice, like one who breaks a dog's neck. There's no instructions anywhere for Israel for how to go about sacrificing a dog. It's, it's not a clean animal. It's not something that they bring to God. He who presents a grain offering, another legal sacrifice, like one who offers pig's blood. Pigs are not clean animals. You can't offer pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, legal, like one who blesses an idol. That the people are over and over told again and again, don't serve the idols. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I call, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that, I, that in which I did not delight. Hear the words of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy but it is they who shall be put to shame. Now that statement, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, it's the, the pious-sounding Israelites saying that they're wanting God's glory. And the, the picture of them taking legal offerings to the temple and God saying that those are no different than breaking a dog's neck or offering pig's blood or killing a human, they're saying Israel has fallen into this problem of thinking that the temple is a magic talisman. A thing that if they just put the right inputs in, they can live however they want. And they can ignore God's call on Israel to be God's people among the nations because we've got the magic temple. We do the temple services and then we can act however we want and it's all okay. The leaders of Israel are the ones being indicted for their failure to lead Israel in righteousness. And I... I want to offer a story to you about someone that really understood proper leadership. Really understood leading not just to check the boxes. Not to say, you know, I've been put in this position and I've been given these people to do this job and I'm just going to use them however I feel like. Ernest Shackleton lived in what was called the, the heroic age of polar exploration. And in 1914, he had just lost the race to the South Pole. And so he was looking for what's the, the next 
great prize. And what, what he comes up with is to be the first person to cross the Antarctic continent while crossing the pole at the same time. And so in the, the end of 1914, he sets out to become the first person to do this. But they run into a problem. In January of 1915, they're, they're getting through the middle of the Arctic summer, Antarctic summer, and the ship, the Endurance, gets caught in the ice as they're trying to make their way to the Antarctic continent. And it gets frozen and stuck. And they spend the next months surviving on board the ship. And Shackleton realizes once the ship is stuck, this wasn't supposed to happen, his job has just changed. Rather than crossing the continent, what he needs to do is get his people out safely. So for 10 months they survive on board ship until the ship starts being pressured by the ice to where it starts breaking up. So he gets the people off the ship and then they watch as the ship slips into the, the South Sea. They begin trying to make their way across the ice flows to an island where they know there's a lot of resources. But they're just encountering such rugged terrain they can't do it. And so finally they have to turn aside to this, this other island that really has nothing but at least it's solid land, Elephant Island. And so Shackleton realizes he's they're not in a place where they can sustain themselves. Their goal was to come out on the other side of the continent. They're, there's no one going to be looking for them where they are. So he realizes they're going to have to take one of the ship's boats, an open boat, and he chooses the five strongest people from the expedition to go with him. And he knows he's going to have to make a three-week crossing of the Southern Ocean. It's some of the most treacherous ocean in the world. It's frigid water. It's an open boat. He doesn't allow them to bring more than four weeks' worth of provisions with them because he knows if they haven't made it back to South Georgia, the island that they initially launched from, by the end of four weeks, it's the people on Elephant Island that are going to need those reserves because they're not going to have any use for them. So they, they strike out. They go for three weeks across the Southern Ocean. They arrive at South Georgia and they arrive in a hurricane so bad that a 500 ton supply ship is sunk on its way to South Georgia. With those kind of winds blowing, they can't make it around the island to the inhabited northern tip. They, they have to get off on the southern end. And so he once again has to look through the men that have come with him and pick the two strongest that are left after the ocean crossing. And they make a very difficult crossing of South Georgia. It's rugged mountains. They've only got 50 feet of rope. Instead of a climbing ice axe, they have a carpenter's adze. It's a feat that's not going to be repeated again for 40 years. And at that point, professional climbers with professional equipment make the crossing and say, I don't know how they did it other than that they had to. So Shackleton arrives at the settlement in South Georgia. And his goal was to get there to let them know there are 22 people on Elephant Island. There are three guys on the southern end of South Georgia. And you'd, you'd think at this point, you know, surviving the ice crossing, you know, su surviving for, for months with his men, surviving the crossing of the Southern Ocean, surviving the crossing of the mountains, you'd think at this point he could pretty easily say, look, you need to go rescue these people. But he doesn't. He begins to head up the rescue uh, party. And they've exhausted their resources. They've exhausted the colony's resources. He's got to actually go and petition the Chilean government to lend him a boat. Gets the boat, gets back, rescues the guys on Elephant Island, discovers that the boat that was going to go around Antarctica to pick them up on the other side, it had a problem. It had to throw a bunch of people ashore and flee to New Zealand. So he goes to New Zealand. And he joins that rescue expedition. And he goes and he rescues the... He has rescued, by the time he's done with this, he has rescued everyone. He's gotten everyone, both his team and the other team, off of Antarctica safely. This is a person that understood when you're given a mission, you do the mission. You don't just figure out what the checkboxes are so you can say, okay, I've done my part. You get the mission done. 
Israel did not understand that. Israel had this spirit of saying, we're just going to figure out what the simple rules are so that we can follow those rules and then say, okay, I've saved myself. I'm justified. I've done what I needed to. And that's a mindset that we identify with because it's a mindset that we give into very easily. Uh, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton wrote a book in 2005 called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And they interviewed over 3,000 teenagers looking to understand their religious beliefs. And they discovered among these 3,000 teenagers that they could group together four religious beliefs held in common, and they identified it as a religious view that actually is a pretty good description of where most Americans are. They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. And it, it consisted of four tenets. Now, this isn't a, a formal creed that, you know, you can picture people reciting together. It's rather just if you examine what the average American thinks, for most people, you're going to find these four things in common. First is that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That's the moralistic part. And we can see that in the, the culture around us. We can see that in ourselves. We, we think it's appropriate that people treat each other well and fairly. We're very concerned about being non-judgmental of other people. We're moralistic. Now, the second, the therapeutic part, is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And this is enormously pervasive in our culture. Uh, you're, if you think about the, the point of virtually every Disney movie is self-actualization, be true to yourself. Just dig deep enough inside till you find that, that true part and, and, you know, build that part up as much as you can and, and you'll be happy. And for most Americans, that's what religion exists for. It's there to make us feel better about ourselves. It's there to, to give us a, a better picture of who we really are inside so that we can feel good about that. The next, God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Most Americans see God as someone who is kind of distant and out there. But if I need to call on someone, it's not a matter of disciplining myself and, and interacting with him and studying his word and being part of his worshiping community. It's rather when I'm starting to feel down or when I need something, that's who I go to. Now, the last point to identify is that good people go to heaven when they die. This is a commonly held belief. And you, you can picture and you can... You know, probably you've talked to people, you know, it's not like I'm a murderer or something. I'm, I'm pretty good to the people around me. I, I don't steal. I don't cheat on my taxes that much. I'm probably going to be okay when I die. Now, the thing is, while as I go through it and lay it out like that, we can kind of see the, the shortcomings of this, but we're deeply influenced by this. We have a tendency, whether, whether we identify as a Christian or not, we have a tendency to approach our faith from these prevailing cultural mindsets. It makes sense that we be good people and that probably that there's a, a balance sheet sort of thing, if you will, and that that's how God tallies things up. Has anyone watched the show The Good Place? Netflix show? Okay. It, it, it's, uh, I don't think this is a spoiler because it, it comes out in the very you know, opening five minutes. Someone dies, they wake up, and they're being told, hey, you've arrived at The Good Place, and here's how it works. We keep a balance sheet throughout your life. And at the end, when it's all done, we tally it up, and if the good things outweigh the bad things, well, you get to be here in the good place. Um, this makes a lot of sense to us. 
And the problem is that we have a tendency to try and import this concept of God into Christianity. Because this is a manageable concept of God. It's, it's a concept of God that we can control. We can check off the boxes and feel good about it. Uh, there are many Christian churches that will put together sort of legalistic lists of things that you can and can't do. And then if you're following the list, you know that you're in the good graces of the church and therefore God is smiling on you. What, I want to challenge us to think about where do we see ourselves doing that? Um, if you're a person who tends to lean conservative, you probably have a tendency to focus on personal piety. And you probably have a tendency to say, you know, how, how am I doing with avoiding pornography? How am I doing with avoiding cursing? How am I doing with avoiding you know, personal drunkenness and things like that? And if those are going well, you might have less of a tendency to be concerned about if you're loving your poor, weaker brother well. Or if you're loving people across racial divides well. Now, if you tend to lean more liberal, you tend to look at yourself in terms of, do I have the right attitudes towards other races? Do I have the right attitudes towards people from other classes? And you tend to kind of sweep under the rug how the personal piety and the things are going. And so we all have this tendency to begin to measure ourselves based on whichever you know, pole we want to, to move towards. And the other thing is, we can look across the aisle and begin to judge the people on the other side of the aisle and think of them as stupid and think of them as less human, and think of them as less valuable, sorry, less valuable to God because of the way they see the world. And we begin to make sure that we're identifying with our tribe, and that identity with our tribe is what we justify ourselves based on. God condemns those attitudes. Look at verse 6. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to His enemies. He's just described the attitudes of His people who are you know, plugging in all the right inputs to the temple system because they know that as long as they do that, they're good. And He says, I'm going to come and bring recompense. I'm going to come and sort things out. Jump ahead to verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by the fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination of mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. He's looking at Israel's self-justification, Israel's checklist, and he's saying, it's not going to fly. It's not going to cut. And a passage like this calls us to look at our self-justification, our simplifying the checks list, and realize it's not going to cut. There is hope, however. God says that He's the one who does His part. Look back at verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
Jump ahead to verse 7. Before she was in labor, he's talking about Jerusalem as a woman. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says the Lord? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply and with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Now that thing that God calls for, this is the one to whom I will look in verse 2. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Back at the beginning of the service, we looked in the Gospel reading, at Luke 18, verses 9-14. through 14. And it's, it's a familiar passage to many of us. But he's describing Jesus talking about two men in the temple. And when we hear of these two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, we hear it probably differently than Jesus' original audience because Pharisee is synonymous, even in our broader culture, with hypocrite. And as a culture, we're very, very much opposed to hypocrisy. It's kind of the, the, the cardinal and darkest sin. Well, for Jesus' audience, when he said Pharisee, they heard person who keeps the law really well. Person who seems to not just do what we hear ancient Israel being condemned for. You know, the, the person that makes sure that they're sacrificing right and that they're tithing right and they're doing those things. But a person who is very, very personally pious. A person who examines and, and makes sure that they're keeping all the rules in a context where it sounds like rule keeping is, is what you're supposed to be doing. And so we see this picture of this very pious and godly person coming into the temple. And you, you can imagine Jesus' audience like wanting to hear, what is this guy going to say? What, what are the prayers of a Pharisee? God, I thank you that I'm not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That actually is going to sort of sound pious to them, maybe sort of full of himself, rather arrogant. But what he's saying is true. He actually keeps the law, it appears. He actually fasts and, and gives tithes. And that's what he's resting his identity on. But then Jesus points to the tax collector. Now, the tax collectors, the, the way Rome uh, figured out how to extort taxes from people was you would go in and you'd find a local that understood the local culture and that understood how far you could push the people before there was going to be open rebellion. And so you use locals. And you would give them the right to tax and they needed to tax up to a certain amount. Whatever gather they gathered beyond that, they could keep. And so... Tax collectors were viewed as people who had betrayed their own people. They knew how far Rome could push before they got into trouble, and they'd push that far. And so the tax collector was a person that might be wealthy, 
but was now outside the boundaries of the community. It was a person that everyone is going to look down on because this is the guy that takes advantage of you. You don't see a tax collector and think, oh, poor, you know, outcast of society. You think, that's the guy that shows up at my door and demands that I give him stuff. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the surprise for Jesus' audience, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Israel is expecting that it's the ones that keep the law well. That it's the ones that do the stuff that we're supposed to do in the temple so that the temple can keep us safe. And they're just trying to simplify the law to the point that they can protect themselves with it. But Jesus says, in keeping with what Isaiah says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And then we get that, that beautiful passage of God protecting and caring for his people. We move ahead to, to 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all the nations and all tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pull, and Lud. These are far distant places, way outside the, the purview and the horizon of what Israel is used to interacting with. Who drew the bow to Tabal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots, and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take as priests, and for Levites, says the Lord. He's actually drawing the priestly class from these nations that are the ends of the earth. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. For all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now, what is shocking about this picture, this is a picture of how Isaiah begins. Back in Isaiah 2, we get this picture of the mountain of the Lord being raised up and the, the valleys being made flat as a highway leading to the mountain of the Lord that the nations are going to flow through. And now, 64 chapters later at the end of the book, God is going back to that image and saying, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to accomplish it. Israel keeps thinking that if they keep the temple going, that they'll, they'll somehow get their reward. But the mission was to reach the whole world. The mission was to bring the glory of God to fill the whole world as the mountains filled, as the, as the sea covers the land. And God says He's going to do it. He's going to be the one to accomplish it. It's not going to be up to Israel checking off the boxes well enough or even really, you know, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and getting out there and getting serious about the mission and doing it. Yeah, that's, that was my point in the, uh, the picture from Shackleton. Here's a guy that understands leadership. Here's a guy that goes and gets the job done. Man, I feel exhausted thinking about all the things this guy went through. How am I, that's what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to take it that seriously? Uh, the point there is, we can't do it. It's not up to us. And the thing is, you know, Shackleton sounds amazing in that story. He basically had moonwalk syndrome. 
after that amazing feat of, of rescuing everyone, you know, circumnavigating the earth a couple times to get everyone back, he goes on and he doesn't really do anything with the rest of his life because that was the high point. There are no heroes besides God. Isaiah 66 is being given to the people in condemnation of them trying to justify themselves because they can't justify themselves. The comfort for us is that we can't justify ourselves either. God came into the world in the person of Christ in order to take the suffering for our failure to actually carry out the mission. In order to defeat death and sin at the cross. In order to rise again in resurrection. And then to ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father and to send His Spirit to unite us to Him. And the comfort of this picture of God calling the nations to Himself and, and pulling them together at His holy mountain of doing what He said back in chapter 2 that He would do is that God does it. The reflection I put on the front of your bulletin it's a few lines from a song by Andrew Peterson, one of my favorite artists. Our priests are cheats. Our prophets are liars. We know what the law requires, but we pile our sins up higher and higher. Who can ascend that hill? And we've heard this story all our lives. Still, we feel the pain of the crucified, and the end still comes as a surprise. But before the breath there in the tomb, before our joy sprang from the womb, you saw a day that's coming soon. When the sun will stand on the mount again with an army of angels at His command and the earth will split like the hull of a seed wherever Jesus plants His feet. And up from the earth the dead will rise like spring trees robed in petals of white singing the song of the radiant bride. We will always be with the Lord. The comfort that's being held out here isn't that if we just work hard enough we can keep our New Year's resolutions. It's not that if we just try hard enough that we'll be the ones who accomplish the mission. It's not that if we identify closely enough with our tribe, whether that's political or religious, that we're going to be okay. The comfort is that God Himself has accomplished what He said He would accomplish. That God Himself has united us to Himself. That we, the nations, those, those people out on the far frontiers of Israel that, that had never heard the Gospel, have been brought near and united to the One who says that He will do it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise You that You are the leader who accomplishes the mission. That You are the One who does what You say You will do. We thank You that we're not left needing to justify ourselves. That we're not left needing to, to get our ducks in a row so that we can feel good about ourselves. That we can come to You in humility knowing that You have done what You said You would do. We praise You in Your holy name. Amen.